Welcome to Diversify the Stand. Together we build a community to listen and learn from the stories and experiences of passionate musicians. I'm Carrie Blosser. And I'm Ashley Killam. In our second season, we talk with musicians, performers, educators, historians, and entrepreneurs to expand how we think of the music we perform and follow non-traditional career paths. In episode 10, we're joined by our assistant production manager, Holland Sleikheis, as we interview Ashley Gordon, the co-founder and artistic and executive director and violist of Castle of Our Skins. She is an educator, performer, activist, and entrepreneur giving presentations on a variety of topics across the world. We are beyond excited to share this interview and are incredibly grateful for the time she gave to speak with us today. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Uh, we wanted to start off with asking you how you got started in music. Yeah, um, I am the youngest of three kids, and my older brother and older sister had played piano, and uh, the natural progression was that I would play piano. I actually hate piano, and begrudgingly took lessons, but for some reason at an early age, I really wanted to play violin. I can't remember how I became attracted to violin, if I, if I saw it, if I heard it or something like this, but I knew from a year, young age that that was the instrument that I wanted. Uh, I remember getting, as a kid, a plastic guitar, like it was a white guitar and it had pink buttons and you could you know push the buttons and they light up. It was probably taller than I was, but I would always hold it on my shoulder like it was a violin. Um, I started in public school on violin and um, switched to the amazing instrument of viola, which I now play in college. So I say that um, the age of reason and wisdom happened for me in college when I when I found the actual instrument that I wanted, uh, which is viola, and have been doing that um, ever since. Then we wanted to ask you with your work with Longi, which is how I know you, and then also Castle of Our Skins and the other courses you teach and the advocacy you do, um, can you talk about how you avoid tokenism in all of that work? Yes, great question. I think a lot of that has to do with intentionality and authenticity. I think with trying to trying to do to do anything <laughs> that does not stem from those two places will be will be work, will be um, short lived, can have conflicting outcomes if they don't come from the same place. Um, so really having lots of reflection and confidence in in what you're doing, having a strong backbone <laughs> in what you're doing so that uh, there is sort of an unwaveringness about why and how you're doing you're doing the things that you're doing. Um, so you 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 reference Castle of Our Skins, um, Classic Longi, which are uh, composers of the African diaspora and co-faculty advising a spirituals ensemble, advocacy as it relates in, in my work around artistic programming, around diversifying the music stand, uh, that, that all stems from the same root. And um, that root is, is really built in an authentic um, and intentional desire to make sure that for me, people are, are curious, people are inquisitive in ways that are empathetic and un, are inquisitive in ways that are going to amplify our collective humanity, if that, if that makes sense, if that isn't too 
too broad for our conversation. So it all it all comes from the same place is, is basically what I'm trying to say. I love that. And it's it's so true. It it is just so much self-reflection, making sure we aren't coming at it from the just like the performative angle of, you know, I'm doing it because it's cool, because it's the buzzword right now. Something I know I've been asked a lot in a lot of like the presentations I give are from an early career educators um, want to be conductors that, you know, are people that have lived in a town that's like 99% white for their entire life. What advice do you have for people that maybe have been in that culture that haven't experienced anything else? How do they, what do you recommend to take the steps in, in starting all of this work and in starting a sustainable inclusion and not just this performative work of checking off boxes and and trying to tick all the marks of this tokenism. Yeah, it it very much does. And um, I think that's a great follow-up question because it's very much related to being, being curious, wanting to know and wanting to understand. I, I remember since you had referenced culture, our conversation in our class, Composers of the African Diaspora, where we talked about culture and culture being literally the general operating system of everything for you. So your perspective, your view of religion, how how you um, literally see the world, how you experience things. It, it is literally the framework by which uh, everything operates and the framework that you can consciously and tangibly understand and recognize and speak about and the things that you cannot consciously um, uh, understand and speak about because it's a generational sort of um, uh, generational understanding that has been passed down. Um, so to, to some extent, I would say have, have a culture shock um, and literally experience something that is, that is not part of your normative, that is um, similar to traveling. I think that's, that's a great way, right? And traveling and being able to understand the subtle nuances that extend beyond your, your perspective. And you can travel through film, you can travel through art and music, you can travel through literature, you can, you can travel through literally having a conversation with, with someone. So if you are in that community where it's, it's quite insular, it's quite homogeneous, there are other ways that you can engage. You can travel through uh, watching a different media source, <laughs> for instance, right? And, and understanding a different perspective. Um, and I think with that kind of travel, to do that with as much judgment-freeness as possible, in the sense that it is a bit of a open-minded experiment, because again, that that sense of curiosity is insatiable. It is tangible. It is uh, what literally will keep you engaged, keep you broaden your perspectives. It will keep you alive, <laughs> literally, with with thinking about. Nature, for instance, nature is an, an organism that, that grows and morphs and change and changes. Uh, we are certainly an extension and part of nature. We are we are interdependent to nature, and also need to grow, um, adapt, change, be flexible. Um, so, it, it I think it's a very natural <clears throat> part of our life, very natural process to be able to grow and to change and to adapt, as difficult and daunting and uh, scary as that seems for some people, right? 
Uh, it is such a natural part of how how we operate as as Homo sapiens to grow and to adapt to change. And if we embrace that, um, I, I think we would have far greater empathy in this world. Exactly. Um, and something you mentioned, and an organization that I know is near and dear to you, and something that everyone should take some time and learn about and grow from, is Castle of Our Skins. And we'd love to hear a little more about how that began and how that all came to be. Sure. Well, I know on your podcast, you talked to Anthony R. Green, composer, social justice advocate. Um, he is co-founder with, with myself, with Castle of Our Skins, and um, a dear friend and a dear colleague whom I met doing my master's at the New England Conservatory of Music. Um, we met and um, performed his work. We, we collaborated, worked together uh, before there was such a thing as a Black student union and wanted to, when we graduated, have an opportunity to still support each other's work and stay connected despite always having uh, lived in, in different geographies and different time zones, even to this day. We found a sort of, it was, it was dormant, I would say, interest or curiosity in, in African diasporic composers. And, and when I say African diasporic, thinking of the middle passage dispersal. So dias, uh, diaspora being two words that are combined, um, seed, which is spora, and dia, which is across. So seed being Africa and the dispersal or the spread across geography and uh, time. So we, we had what was a dormant at the time, interest in learning of other black performers, creatives, um, composers, musicians, etc. And I say dormant because um, we hadn't been even exposed to the thought during our multiple degrees during our multiple studies and and decades at that point of music education, um, but had a, a understanding and curiosity that perhaps there, there are more than just you and I. Uh, and of course, when you do any kind of, uh, even just a, a basic Google search, names start coming up. When you go into libraries, books start appearing, right? Um, and when you uh, open those books and do those Google searches, other organizations, histories, entire worlds start opening up. So it became quickly apparent to us that there uh, is a very active and rich history, and we are active and creative participants in that history. We are literally building the history that uh, someone else will Google search and will open a book um, and experience. And that was very, very, and still is, an exciting uh, concept to understand and to to throw ourselves into that world to uh, recognize. Being in Boston, which is where Castle of Erskins is based and where I am currently based, we also recognize that there is such a connection to Black excellence and artistry in Boston that again was, was very dormant and uh, one that we hadn't recognized because it wasn't one that was um, adamantly celebrated. Uh, and, and sort of widely celebrated. There, there were definitely, as we, as we learned, amazing people, amazing organizations. Uh, T.J. Anderson, who was the music director at Tufts University, 
95, 96, something like this, years old still, living today, uh, very much a mentor to so many uh, composers and, and performers, very much a, a glue uh, grandfather figure. Um, and Videmus, which is a music publishing, music recording uh, company, got started in Boston, now headed by Dr. Louise Toppin, uh, performs and, and highlights the music of women and uh, African diasporic um, composers. There, there is a lineage, um, Dr. Bill Banfield, Dr. Julius Williams, uh, Dr. Jonathan Bailey Holland here in Boston, uh, affiliated with, with Berkeley and Boston Conservatory. So um, when we started doing that sort of work, networks appeared, histories appeared, through lines appeared, um, which gave us sort of an amplifying strength to continue on sort of a, a wave for us to sort of surf on and build upon. Um, but still they, they were not household names, not common um, part of, of conversation, not common part of classrooms. Uh, and so we, we, we really wanted to change that. We wanted to amplify and make black excellence, make this, this history of black culture um, very much part of a norm. So I like to say that we, we flood collective consciousness with, with black excellence. So our programming is active. It is, it's not regulated to any particular time of the year. Um, it's part of classroom conversations. Our concerts are quite literally year round. And I, I know as artistic director that it is exhaustive. Um, and we, we really wanted to make sure that history and, and uh, those that have come before us and, and really paved the way uh, for us to do this work are daily, uh, via social media, daily reminders for, for people. So there's no question about blackness and excellence, classical music or this Western European art music and black contributions that there's no question that those should be part of the same um, sentence, the same conversation. So in a nutshell, as, as I've referenced earlier, curiosity is really a big part of what we do in fostering that curiosity in Black excellence and Black artistry through music and through other arts is uh, what Castle of Our Skins is all about. I always think it's really striking. You're saying it, you're, you finished your master's degree and then started researching. So those names who you're then saying Then I started not, learning, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Kind of like the absence of the information was the learning experience you know like no one had brought up names that you're saying aren't household household names but you and castle for skins are making household names which i think is really awesome yes yes and i think for for us how this leads back into um even the earlier conversation around um tokenism how how to do something with authenticity and with intentionality uh, because we have a genuine interest in wanting to learn and to understand, we are, we are constantly learning and understanding. Yeah. Um, so for for us, there is great care. There's there's a huge sense of responsibility that's attached with this as well too, since a narrative around blackness is so complicated. Um, we we want to do this, and certainly with respect to our our elders and our ancestors, we want to do this with great care and intentionality. Um, so much of that is built around perspective, is built around narrative, built around optics, which we understand and and very much want to fill in 
as complete a picture as possible, especially because so many of the names are literally uh, first impressions. And as we know, first impressions are a lasting impression. Whether or not the music or the person is new, uh, was born in 1501, or is uh, a world premiere that was written yesterday, it still has a care care to it uh, that requires a whole and complete narrative. Um, and I, I definitely think to go earlier to what we were talking about tokenism, if we understand and if we treat each story attached to a person that is not interchangeable, so it's not that we can't get the music of Will and Grant still, so throw Florence Price into the mix. They are two completely different people um, that require context, that require a portrait. Um, when, when we say the name, uh, Beethoven, for instance, there's perhaps an association, perhaps imagery, um, perhaps familiarity of some kind that is associated, that, that comes to mind. Uh, but when we say the name of um, Dawson or Johnson or Montague Ring, there may not be that kind of familiarity and context. So to avoid tokenism, which is an extraction, uh, we really do need to, to situate those names and histories with, with a person, with a whole complete um, person and their music, their history, their context, so that there is a familiarity. Um, so to do that with authenticity is to, is to not extract, but to really build that kind of context. So you already mentioned uh, composers of African diaspora class that you taught at Longi, and then also sort of touched on this idea with the culture question that Ashley was talking about earlier. Um, but specifically with that, we had a really interesting discussion in that class about culture and white supremacy and like how they interact in America and how we had some good analogies for it and things like that. So I would just love for you to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think one of the analogies that was referenced was the fish in, in the fishbowl where a fish, if you, if you tell it that it's swimming in water, it sort of looks at you, well, <laughs> if a fish can look at you, <laughs> questioning, like, what, what is water? I don't understand what you mean. Um, and as soon as you take the fish out, there, there is this sort of shock, right? Um, so if we can liken ourselves to that fish, that we are literally swimming in, again, perspectives, understanding of the world, understanding of, of time and of religion, um, that is so uh, pervasive that we don't even realize that it, it, it's so normalized. We don't even realize that we're swimming in it until we leave it, until we travel, until we um, have it be questioned, right? There, there's no reason necessarily to question it, especially as it is something that is uh, generationally passed down, our perspectives of, of life, of the world, of um, our understanding, our notions of time, literally our, our general operating system is one that is passed down and one that is uh, experienced and developed as we continue to grow. Um, so with, with respect to white supremacy culture, if we, if we understand that this is a conscious and an unconscious uh, perspective, literally worlds and, and feelings in, that we adopt, um, it's, it's, to, to that extent, um, easier to comprehend how it is so difficult to understand uh, and, and name white supremacy culture. 
right? It, if if it is it if it is absorbed, if it's um, generationally passed down, if it's adopted, as well as things that are experienced um, in in real time. Uh, so I have I have empathy around trying to understand. I, I am not white, right? But I have empathy around those who are white and trying to understand how how their culture, how their whiteness, how their ideas, perspectives, etc., have have shaped in in ways that are harmful, in ways that are negative. I have I have empathy in trying in trying to understand that. Um, with thinking that again, there's there's this unconscious aspect, literally one that has been developing for hundreds of years, that is a normative part of of life, that is a normative part of their perspective, right? Um, and I, as a black person, um, also have empathy with my own understanding, passed down for hundreds of years, uh, right? And and trying to to think about things that have been absorbed in my own perspective and my own angle and understanding, um, association and, uh, viewpoints, I, I have perspective as well too. I have that, that sense that there are natural things that I, that I do and that I see and that I recognize that I haven't named before. So I, I understand in this conversation around the difficulty of putting names to things that have been habitualized and how difficult it is to even imagine a world where, for instance, capitalism doesn't exist, where hierarchies don't exist, where um, we don't have a sense of competition, but we have a sense of communal operations, which is not how America works, right? Where we don't have um, uh, mega tech companies, but we have small communal-based um, agricultural systems and technology systems and things like this. It's It's completely different if we think about a different way of operating. Literally, our general operating system is, is different if it weren't wrapped in uh, a white supremacy cultural mindset um, where where homogeneous uh, uh, ho sort of thinking and understanding, um, perfectionism and either or thinking, where those, where those aren't centerpieces of our life. Uh, where hybridity and messiness and imperfection um, and uh, fluidity are are natural parts of our uh, existence and um, recognized as being yeah normalized. So it's it is literally a a different world, different than we have ever experienced. Uh, that is now part of, of our conversation. And so I understand the difficulty of trying to wrap one's head around that because it literally is kind of science fiction, right? It's it's something that we haven't experienced before um, when we are trying to dismantle a, a generationally um, adopted perspective and way of being, dismantling our, our political system, dismantling our economic system. That Those, those are... Those are large conversations. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I'm I'm saying that I can understand um, the the fear of um, the fear of change, right? Uh, I'm I'm reading. Speaking of science fiction and change, I'm reading *Parable of the Sower* by Octavia Butler, an African American uh, sci science fiction writer, and *Parable of the Solar* is so sower is all about change, and there's various sort of proverbs in there, one of which is um, God God is change. Uh, and using 
God in the sense of um, a, a belief system, sort of a, a central spoke to your perspective. Um, so, so religion for for people not to turn this into um, a, a religious podcast or anything like this, but but for religion to be a a center in your life, your belief system, and in this case, this this um, metaphor is that change is that belief system. Your anchor for how you operate is to operate in flexibility and change. Uh, that is such that is such a profound. Uh, statement and a profound belief where if your sole understanding in life that you can set as a foundation for your for your movement is to know that flexibility and adaptability and change is a constant that that I think is amazing then we wouldn't have I think as much resistance as we do I am so jealous that I can't take your class I just I <laughs> We would love to know if you have any exciting projects that you're currently working on or Castle of Skins or any groups that you're a part of kind of going through the fall and then into the winter that we can promote here. Yeah, no exciting projects. There's nothing coming up. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, we, we have um, we have a lot, which I'm, I'm happy to say uh, we're in with Castle of Our Skins. We're in our ninth season uh, and the 10th the 10th one is right around the corner. So I have two seasons worth of things in my head, two years worth of programming. Um, but with season nine, uh, we have a second annual creative in residence. Uh, we had um, a really fantastic composer, scholar, Zimbabwean uh, artist and healer for, for year one. And we have a really amazing poet for year two. So um, with with that poet, we have a, a number of, of projects lined up, one of which is a collaboration with a really fantastic quilter to talk about the African-American quilting tradition, literally building lives and building things from scraps uh, and building beauty, I should say, from scraps. So so combining those two forces together, um, having a whole entire project centered around, around their work um, and infusing music, infu infusing arts, and perhaps creating a... Um, uh, digital LP, and I don't know how that will work, so we'll have to figure that out of, of their poetry, um, and, and a variety of other programs uh, all centered around around their artistry. Um, we also have, as, as sort of the world opens back up, a little bit of traveling, uh, so coming down to, to Baltimore in October to do a residency at the University of Baltimore, uh, traveling to New York City for our first New York city kind of debut, still in the works, but hopefully involving the Schomburg Center, uh, the Schomburg Research Center for um, uh, all focused around African and African diasporic music and culture and history. Um, and also not 100% confirmed, but very much in the pipeline, a, tri a trip to England, to Oxford, with Florence Price scholar, Dr. Amitha Eggy, uh, to do residencies, performing, and our first ever recording project. Um, and then in, in Boston, there's sort of some of the usual things that, that we do, which involve educational programming, um, teaming up with a uh, company here in town to do some uh, long-term, I can't say too much about it because we haven't announced it yet, so some, some long-term multi-year kind of educational work um, around operas, I guess I can, I can say that much. Um, and then with 
our sort of usual partners in in town again doing doing um, performative work. We have a world premiere that was uh, written for us by Daniel Bernard Romain with the Celebrity Series of Boston, um, bringing in Natalie Joachim, flutist and a composer to do a, a whole project around the concept of homeland at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and um, other projects related with Longy as well too, where we're uh, ensemble in residence. So bringing in South African composer, Dr. Mongani Nadona Breen to do uh, masterclass concerts, etc., around his his music, his works, and um, yeah, sort of no no shortage, I guess, of of our usuals um, doing educational work, doing performative work in a collaborative way. Um, I can also share at this point that me myself and I um, am artist in residence at the Brattleboro Music Center up in Vermont, and um, that is sort of a Castle River Skins 2.0, but uh, in, in Brattleboro where I will be doing a bunch of educational work and also programmatic work. We're still sort of working out on the details, but similarly doing lectures around um, African diasporic composers, educational workshops, side-by-side -side performances with youth um, around African-American folk songs, around quilting traditions, around um, learning learning of composers that are near and dear to my heart and, and cultures that are near and dear to my heart and performances uh, galore. So that, that is also in the work. So a little bit of traveling for me personally uh, to Vermont, which is a very beautiful drive from Boston for this year and potentially uh, the, the year following. We have our very last question for you. What is on your music stand this week? And how are you diversifying your stand? Yeah, well, um, my music stand is usually filled with uh, chamber music from African diasporic composers. So that's kind of a, a, a norm. So if I were to diversify my music stands and not have um, chamber works by African diasporic composers, this, this week I actually um, am playing with a new music chamber ensemble called Alarm Well Sound. Um, and I have on my mu music stand a piece by Earth Eater, um, composer who is, is new to me, um, and Marcus Bolter, and um, oh my goodness, who else is on my music stand? All, all things sort of related to that project, and I, I need to do much more research around that project, around who, who all these people are <laughs> and, and what is the, the theme behind it. Um, I am doing a project, um, composer Julius Williams, who is an African diaspora composer, for the Boston Children's Chorus in, in commemoration to the 54th uh, Shaw Memorial, which is one of the, the largest and historic um, memorials for the 54th Regiment, which is an all black regiment that, that fought um, in the Civil War. And, um, so that, that is also on my, my music stand. Um, as I had wanted, but didn't necessarily get a chance to do, because I thought I would have more time this summer <laughs> to learn some music, um, really, really did want to learn some viola solo, since I do so much in chamber music settings and other sort of ensemble settings and sort of beef up my 
uh, viola repertoire. So it's on my music stand, but I haven't opened it. <laughs> um, and wanted to learn some solos by um, some composers that I really appreciate and some composers that are new for me. So um, Carlos Simon, uh, I wanted to learn some solo works for viola and John McLaughlin Williams. Uh, I wanted to learn, he, John McLaughlin Williams is a Grammy award-winning conductor and violinist and wrote some solos that um, Alicia Nelson, who's who's the um, only black um, musician of the Cleveland Orchestra, or if not the only at this point, the first uh, in the viola section. And um, TJ Anderson, I, I referenced, um, uh, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, also having a really uh, uh, great repertoire to be able to engage with. Um, and in any case, th those are on my my music stand that I haven't quite quite opened up yet. Found the time to open up, but um, hope hope to be able to in the upcoming weeks. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This was um, a great conversation. To learn more about Ashley, Castle of Our Skins, and the groups and resources that she recommended, check out our website and in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to Diversify the Stand. I'm Ashley. And I'm Carrie. If you'd like to support us and our projects, find us on social media and visit our website. We now have a store where you can pick up some Diversify the Stand gear. And as always, a huge thank you to Trevor Weston and Whitney George for allowing us to use their compositions in our podcast. The musical introduction is Trevor's trumpet duet, Fanfare for Changes, and the ending music is Whitney's Incantations for Trumpet and Piano. Both composers' websites are listed in the podcast description. Until next week, what's on your stand? <laughs>